when Diane and I talked on the telephone about what I might do for the adult education hour this Sunday morning, we talked about a number of possibilities, and then she suggested, well, why don't you do something about Easter? And that sounded like a good idea to me, too, so that's what I plan to do this morning. And what I will want to do is, um, and I plan to speak for, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes so we can have some conversation time about this as well. Uh, what I want to do is to treat two kinds of questions. One is the historical question of what can we say about what happened at Easter, what does Easter involve? And then secondly, what kinds of meanings does Easter have? I suppose you could call that the theological dimension of this, but theological almost seems a little bit too narrow for the meanings of Easter, nevertheless historical and theological seems like a good progression. And I want to begin with just a few comments about the death of Jesus, just because I think it's uh, difficult to see um, what the Easter traditions of the early church meant without saying something about the death of Jesus. And I want to treat very briefly, primarily one question. Why was Jesus killed? And that's a different kind of question than the church historically has been accustomed to ask about the death of Jesus. Most frequently, the question that's asked has been, now, why did Jesus die? And then one can give answers such as he died for the sins of the world and so forth. But it makes absolutely no sense to say to the question, why was Jesus killed? He was killed for the sins of the world. And let me back into this question by mentioning that um, two years ago, uh, my wife, Mary Ann, whom you know as an Episcopal priest, began her Good Friday sermon with the question, or with the statement, uh, this is the day of the year when we traditionally remember the death of Jesus and speak about uh, Jesus dying for our sins and so forth. But let me tell you something. He didn't die. He was killed. And that leads to a very different way of thinking about Good Friday. I apologize to the tape machine. I just turned on my microphone. Okay. Um, and, and if you ask the question, why was Jesus killed? And uh, think it through historically, the answer, in shorthand, is he was killed because he was a social prophet who challenged the ruling elites of his day who stood at the top of his social uh, world. And Walter Wink, a uh, very, very fine New Testament scholar, uses the phrase domination system to speak about the, the combination of Roman imperial power and the native aristocracy who uh, stood at the top of the hierarchical social world of Jesus' day. And Jesus was killed because he challenged the domination system. To use my own um, strokes for speaking about Jesus as a way of making this point, if Jesus had been simply a spirit person, a healer, and a wisdom teacher, I don't think he would have been executed. It's because he is also a social prophet that he is killed. And I can make that point yet one more way by calling your attention to the distinction between a martyr and a victim. If you or I uh, were to be mugged tonight, let me put that in the past tense so I don't arouse anxiety, if you or I had been mugged last night, uh, we would be a victim, but we would not be a martyr. A martyr is killed because he or she stands for something 
and Jesus is killed because he stands against the domination system and is a radical social critic. He stands in that great tradition of the Hebrew classical prophets being a voice of religious social protest against the domination system of his day. So with that prologue remark about why was Jesus killed out of the way, let me now turn to the question of Easter. And I simply want to identify the kinds of historical questions that are frequently generated in the minds of Christians by, by uh, Easter. Questions like, was the tomb empty? Did something happen to the corpse of Jesus? What were the appearances of the risen Christ like? Were they video cam kinds of events, by which I mean if you had been there with a video camera, could you have uh, caught the Easter appearances on film? Um, are they to be understood, in other words, as publicly visible events, such as any disinterested observer could have seen if he or she had been there? And does the truth of the Easter stories depend on that? And as I think we're all aware, for many of our uh, conservative Christian brothers and sisters, the answers to all of those questions are basically yes. The tomb was empty, something did happen to the corpse. You could have seen this if you had been there, uh, whether you were a believer or not. Um, but those are the kinds of questions I want you to hold in your mind as I turn now to thinking about what we can say historically <coughs> about Easter. And as those of you who were here yesterday heard me say in response to a question, my own position is that Easter need not have involved anything at all happening to the corpse of Jesus. And I say that initially for two reasons. One is this crucial distinction between two words that are oftentimes confused, resuscitation and resurrection. Resuscitation means that a person dead or believed to be dead comes back to life and resumes the existence they previously had. We'll still be mother of so-and-so or brother of so-and-so, and very importantly, we'll die again someday. So resuscitation means resumption of previous existence and intrinsically, of course, involves something happening to a corpse. Within a first century Jewish framework of meaning, Resurrection means something very different, and the early Christian movement gets the notion of resurrection from this Jewish framework. And <clears throat> within that framework, resurrection means entry into a different kind of existence. Not resumption of previous existence, but entry into a different kind of existence. Uh, among other things, a resurrected person will not die again so that resurrection means entry into a kind of existence that is beyond the categories of life and death, even. Um, it means uh, entry into that kind of existence that the great concluding, or great concluding vision in the book of Revelation refers to, where uh, there will be no more grief anymore, no more sorrow anymore, no more death anymore. Uh, resurrection means entry into a kind of existence that is, in a sense, beyond the categories of space and time. Now, once you see that distinction, you realize that resurrection does not intrinsically involve something happening to a corpse. It could. It could involve the transformation of a corpse into a, a different kind of um, existence or a different kind of body, but it doesn't intrinsically need to do so. Let me do a little 
aside here. My colleague John Dominic Crossan, in uh, a number of his books, and especially in uh, Jesus of Revolutionary Biography, suggests that what most probably happened to the body of Jesus is that it was either buried in a common grave, um, that is an unmarked grave, a mass grave, which is what one of the things the Romans oftentimes did with the um, corpses of crucified persons, or the other thing the Romans did with the corpses of crucified persons, or left on the cross for um, the birds of the air and the dogs, the scavenger dogs, to devour. And here I add that people were typically crucified with their feet only six inches off the ground. That's because they didn't have to be higher than that in order for the process to work. And also that would make it possible for the scavenger dogs to get at the body. So Crossan provocatively suggests that Jesus' body was probably eaten by dogs. I don't recommend that for either a Good Friday sermon or uh, an Easter sermon. But it's a provocative and somewhat revolting suggestion. But once you realize this distinction between resuscitation and resurrection, it doesn't matter what happened to the body of Jesus. So all of that is the first reason for saying that it need not have involved anything happening to his corpse. The second reason for saying that is uh, because of what Paul says about the resurrection in our earliest discussion of the resurrection in the New Testament. And I mentioned this yesterday also. And it's found in 1 Corinthians 15, and in good professorial fashion, I've provided you with a, a handout this morning. And to turn to that handout for a moment, <coughs> you notice that the handout is about Easter stories in the New Testament, earliest to latest. So it arranges the accounts uh, uh, beginning at the top with Paul providing us with the earliest account and the account of John probably being the latest. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the whole of that chapter, by the way, is about uh, resurrection. Uh, Paul, Paul speaks of the risen Christ appearing in the first paragraph on the handout to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, there are three things that are interesting about that short paragraph. One, it doesn't mention an empty tomb. That may or may not be significant. But Paul doesn't say, and they found the tomb empty, and they knew that he had been raised from the dead. He instead talks about the risen Christ appearing. That's the second interesting thing. The verb used here, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared, is the Greek verb most commonly used to indicate a visionary experience. And then the third thing that's very interesting about this paragraph is that Paul includes himself in the list of those to whom the risen Christ has appeared. And if we ask, when did that happen? It's the Damascus Road experience, some two to five years after the death of Jesus, long before that 40-day period between the resurrection and the ascension that Luke speaks about in the opening chapter of Acts. And moreover, if we ask what was Paul's Damascus Road experience like, it was a visionary experience. 
It's reported three times in the book of Acts, Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26, each time with slightly different, different details. But in each case, the people with Paul do not experience what he experienced. It's a private, subjective experience, which is what visions are. Visions are like a waking dream, if you will. And I don't mean to minimize it by saying it was a vision. I think visions are real. They happen. And people who have visions often feel very strongly that there is a disclosure of something real in the vision. But the point being that Paul, our first person to talk about the resurrection, treats it as a visionary kind of experience. The other thing that's very interesting about 1 Corinthians 15 is that in the rest of the chapter, Paul goes on to address the question, with what kind of body are the dead raised? And explicitly denies that it is the physical body that is raised, says instead it is the spiritual body. Uh, what is a spiritual body? Well, other than the negative, that it's not the physical body, it's, it's difficult to know what Paul means by this. And he uses the analogy of um, the physical body being to the spiritual body as a seed is to the full-grown plant. It's an analogy that speaks of continuity, of course, but within the framework of radical discontinuity of appearance. Now, uh, what's interesting is that 1 Corinthians 15 also includes the verse that is very frequently quoted by defenders of the physical resurrection and the empty tomb. It's the verse quoted, um, well, I guess I don't quote it on the handout. It's the verse that goes like this. <clears throat> if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And what's fascinating is that that verse is in the middle of a chapter which denies that it's a physical resurrection. So, so Paul is not speaking about a physical resurrection, but he's saying the resurrection is real and it involves a spiritual body. <coughs> then some quick comments about how the story is told in the Gospels. The earliest Gospel account is in Mark 16. We're back to the handout here. And that's written around the year 70, 40 years after the death of Jesus, roughly 20 years after 1 Corinthians 15. And it's very interesting that the first gospel story of Easter has the story of the empty tomb, but no appearance stories. In Mark, there's only the promise given by the young man dressed in white, probably an angel at the tomb, uh, the promise given to the women uh, go to Galilee, there you will see him. So there's a promise of an appearance in Galilee. And then Mark's story ends very oddly. The very last verse of Mark's Gospel, and also the last verse of the empty tomb story is, and the women fled from the tomb and said nothing to anybody about it, for they were afraid. And some scholars have felt that... Uh, Mark includes with that closing line the explanation as to why the story of the empty tomb was not known in early Christianity until the time of Mark. It's because the people who found the tomb empty never said anything to anybody about it. And so some, some scholars have suggested that Mark, in effect, invents the story of the empty tomb and includes the explanation as to why 
you all don't know about this. Um, I'm not sure if, that, if that's correct or not, but it's an interesting suggestion. Last comment about Mark. I think the story of the empty tomb is a wonderful parable of the resurrection. I don't mean that the resurrection is a parable, but the story of the empty tomb is a wonderful parable of the resurrection. Why do you seek Jesus among the dead? You will not find him among the dead, for he is among the living. Um, the place which was the place of death has become the place of new life. You could even do word plays like the tomb has become a womb and so forth. And all of that can flow out of treating the story of the empty tomb as a parable of the resurrection. Then, commenting briefly about the remaining gospel stories, um, Matthew, back to the handout, Matthew 28 has the empty tomb story, which he takes over from Mark. And then Matthew <coughs> provides an appearance story in Galilee to fulfill the promise given in Mark that you will see him in Galilee. And this is the story of the great commissioning and so forth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. And those are the final words of the risen Christ in Matthew's gospel. But no Jerusalem stories in Matthew. In Luke 24, still on the handout, we again have the empty tomb story, which Luke gets from Mark. And then Luke has no Galilee appearance stories, but has appearance stories in and around Jerusalem. And therefore, Luke has to change the promise given to the women, go to Galilee, there you will see him. And Luke rewrites that to go like this. Remember how he said to you in Galilee, okay? And then finally, John, most likely the latest of the Gospels, has the story of the empty tomb, which he may or may not have gotten from Mark. We don't know if John knew the Gospel of Mark or not. And John has appearances in both Jerusalem and in Galilee. Jerusalem stories in John 20, Galilee stories in John 21. A generalization that I can uh, note for you, it, when we do arrange the Easter stories in the chronological order in which they were written, the generalization that emerges is that the later the story, the more physical the details are. <clears throat> it's in Luke where you first get the um, image of the risen Christ eating. He asks for a piece of fish and eats it. And it's in John's Gospel where you have Jesus not only inviting Thomas to put his uh, fingers into the wounds, but also in John's Gospel where the risen Christ cooks breakfast for the disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, to go back to the question I mentioned at the beginning, how are we to understand these stories? Are we to understand them as reporting video cam kinds of events? And you can always already guess, of course, what my own response to that would be. But let me try to illustrate it with what is my favorite Easter story and is the favorite Easter story for many people, I think, the story of the Emmaus Road. And, <coughs> excuse me, most of you know that story very well. Let me briefly remind you of it. Um, it's the day that we all know as Easter Sunday. And two followers of Jesus who were with him during his lifetime are walking from Jerusalem to uh, a village called Emmaus, which according to the story is about seven miles away. 
As they walk along, they are joined by a stranger whom we, as the reader, know to be the risen Christ, but they don't know that. And the stranger asks them, what are you talking about? And they turn to him and they say, are you the only person who doesn't know what's been going on in Jerusalem these past few days? A bit of humor there, not exactly a thigh slapper, but a <laughs> bit of humor there. And so they proceed to tell him about the hopes they had for Jesus of Nazareth and how he was crucified and so forth, and they don't recognize him. Uh, they continue to walk along. They end up talking about scripture together and so forth, and still they don't recognize him. They get to Emmaus, and uh, the stranger in their midst is about to leave them. And then they say to him, in these wonderful words, it's uh, Luke 24, verse 27, they say to him, stay with us, for it is evening and the day is far spent, you know. Stay with us, for the darkness is falling. And the King James Version of that verse actually gives us the opening line of that famous hymn, uh, Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. And so the stranger agrees to stay with them. Um, they go into the inn. Uh, they sit down for a meal together. The stranger takes bread, blesses it, and breaks it, and those are standard Eucharistic phrases in the early Christian movement. And in the breaking of the bread, Luke tells us, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then you know what happens. As soon as they recognize him, he vanishes from their sight. Now, imagining once again that you had, had a video cam and were able to follow those two guys along the road, how much of that could you have caught on tape? Could you have caught the stranger on tape? Could you have audio taped the conversation? Uh, could you have uh, videotaped the stranger suddenly vanishing from the room? I think one needs only to ask that question to lead us to a strong hunch that maybe it's not that kind of story. Instead, what the story seems to be affirming is that the risen Christ journeys with us, whether we know that or not, whether we realize that or not, and yet there are those moments of recognition in which we come to see that. And it thus becomes a story about what is true in every generation and not a story about something that happened on a particular day in um, um, a suburb of first century Jerusalem. So, um, I don't think the Emmaus Road story happened in the usual sense that we speak of something happening, and yet I think the story is profoundly true. And the truth of that story is along the lines that I've just suggested. My colleague, uh, Don Crossan, once again, does a similar analysis of this story, and uh, at the end of his analysis has uh, two quotations that I want to uh, share with you. The first is a little bit longer and uh, a little bit jargony, though still very nice. 
The second is two three-word sentences that are real showstoppers. The longer comment that Crossan makes, and I'll tell you when the quotation begins, Crossan says, the story of the Emmaus Road is, quote, the metaphorical condensation of several years of early Christian thought into one parabolic afternoon. Metaphorical condensation into one parabolic afternoon. And then the two three-word sentences that are, that are real showstoppers, Prosten concludes, Emmaus never happened. But you've got to have the next sentence or it's misleading. Emmaus always happens. Present tense. Or to put it only slightly differently, Emmaus never happened. Emmaus happens again and again and again. Let me tell you uh, a little story that makes the same point. My wife and I um, take educational pilgrimages to Israel uh, about once a year. Uh, she's the leader and I go along as her assistant and it's, it's uh, actually a very wonderful experience each time we do it. And the last time we did it, uh, while we were in Jerusalem, we were scheduled one day to go to the church marking the traditional site of Emmaus. And um, we have done this each year that we take the trip. And so we, with our group of 35 people and our Israeli guide, arrive at this church. And uh, the church is locked, though. And we don't know why. It's supposed to be open. Has the caretaker overslept? Is the caretaker sick or whatever? But in any case, the church is locked. And our Israeli guide says, not to worry, there's another Emmaus. In fact, in fact, there are three other Emmauses for a total of four. That is, there are four different churches or shrines, each claiming to be the tradition, each claiming to be the location of Emmaus. Add to that that there is no mention of a village named Emmaus in any ancient record at all. It's only in Luke's story that we find a village named Emmaus. And you'd think if something like this had really happened in a village named Emmaus that it would have been remembered where that place was. And all of this leads to the conclusion that Emmaus is nowhere because Emmaus is everywhere. Now, I won't go through other Easter stories um, to suggest how we might read them, though I'm quite happy to talk about them. Instead, I want uh, very compactly now to conclude with um, the three central meanings of the Easter stories, of the Easter event, as it is sometimes called. The first of these... Jesus is a figure of the present and not just of the past. And I can put that in a slightly different way. Um, The risen living Christ is an experiential reality who continues to be known to this day. And it seems to me that not only is that one of the central meanings of Easter, but that's also the truth of Easter. The truth of Easter is grounded in the fact that people have had experiences of Jesus as a living reality after his death, not only 
in the months or years immediately following his death, but in the centuries ever since. And I don't mean that every Christian has had an experience of the risen living Christ, nor do I see that as essential to being a Christian, but it simply is true that experiences like that have continued to this day. And I think it's a profound mistake to think that the truth of Easter depends upon whether the tomb was really empty, whether something really happened to the corpse of Jesus. That turns the truth of Easter into a past event to which we have no access except through the testimony of witnesses. And it also requires that we think of Easter as an occasion when God supernaturally intervened in history in a way in which God never has done before or since. And that location of Easter as an event on a particular day fixed in the past, I think, does real damage to the claim that the risen living Christ is an experiential reality who continues to be known second meaning of Easter and this goes back to where I started why was Jesus killed he was killed because he opposed the domination system the second meaning of Easter in the New Testament is that it is God's yes to Jesus it is God's vindication of Jesus the domination system said no to Jesus Easter is God's yes to Jesus and God's no to the domination system. And the third and final meaning of Easter is in the affirmation, Jesus is Lord. To speak of Jesus as uh, somebody whom his followers continue to experience after his death is not simply to say that um, uh, that Jesus was experienced as, say, the uh, uh, deceased spouse of somebody might be experienced. I mean, there's statistical data that suggests that 50% of, uh, of uh, surviving uh, spouses will have at least one vivid experience of their dead spouse as if they are alive. And these experiences can be so convincing that you will chase a bus down the street because you're absolutely certain you saw your deceased spouse ride by in that bus. The Easter experiences are not like that because the Easter experiences led the early followers of Jesus to proclaim that Jesus is Lord which you would never dream of doing about your deceased spouse if you saw your deceased spouse. And so the meaning of Easter includes the affirmation that, metaphorically speaking, Jesus is at the right hand of God. God has exalted or raised Jesus up to God's right hand, which is a position of power and authority, so that Jesus participates in the power and authority of God, namely Jesus is Lord. Jesus is for us, to use language I used yesterday, the face of God, the decisive manifestation of God, and Easter, among other things, means that. So, uh, that concludes what, what I wanted to say by way of uh, uh, talking about how Easter is seen by mainline New Testament scholarship these days. I see it this way myself, but this isn't idiosyncratic to me. 
And so in our remaining time together, let me um, uh, invite either your comments or your, your questions about, about all of this. Or about any of this. Yeah, Karen. I don't know much about it, but does it have translation? Um, <coughs> not that I'm aware of, and if it did, I think I would be aware of it. So I think the answer is no. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You, you seem to say um, that um, Jesus way he is now is in a different state than any of us who die. Mm -hmm. uh, from the third comment. Because if my husband died, I wouldn't say he is Lord, but I wouldn't say that to him while he's alive either. Jesus plays a different role for me yeah. Yeah. than um, he, uh, he plays a different role for me in that he taught me the way to live, mm -hmm. which my husband doesn't necessarily play that role. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So therefore, for me, Jesus is Lord because he taught me how to live. Mm -hmm. I always seem to think that when we get to wherever we're going, it will all be the, we will be the same as Jesus, but you seem to say there's a difference. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, and just thinking about how the New Testament presents that, uh, I think it's both a yes and a no, uh, which always sounds like a waffle response. But um, the yes, or the no part of it, let me begin with that. Yeah, our post-death state, whatever it is, is not that we will be Lord. There is that difference, and that's very helpful. It's also true that Paul seems to think that the resurrected body that we will have will be the same kind of body that the resurrected Jesus has, and therefore the resurrected body for us is a spiritual body, but we would not be at the right hand of God functioning as Lord. So it's, that's, that's the yes I part see. of it. And then what it means for us to have um, a spiritual body, I mean, I, I don't have a clue, and I think the New Testament itself uh, suggests um, that it's simply radically different from who and what we are now. And the classic, um, there are a number of texts that speak of that radical difference, but the classic one is the uh, story of Jesus' um, conversation with the Sadducees in Mark 12. You may remember that story. The Sadducees are a Jewish group, a Jewish aristocratic group, uh, who don't believe in life after death. And seeking to show how ridiculous the notion is, they come to Jesus with the story of a woman who married seven brothers in a row, and each of them died in succession. And then they said, now in the life of the age to come, whose wife will she be? And it's a perfectly sensible question if you imagine that there is considerable continuity between this life and the next life. And the response of Jesus suggests that there is radical discontinuity. He says, you don't know what you're asking about. In the life of the age to come, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And does that mean simply, um, you know, um, you will be like the holy angels? Does that mean simply there's no gonads in heaven, you know, that, that um, uh, there's uh, uh, no um, what, primary uh, marital relationships? 
Or does it mean something like the life of the age to come is so radically different from what we know now that you really can't say much about it? So that's a way of saying that the New Testament itself is very um, uh, silent or cautious at giving any kind of specificity to what it means to have a spiritual body and what kind of continuity of identity or lack of continuity of identity there is after death. But no is a yes for me, though. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay. In, uh, in other words, because it is like saying that last part is that we have the hope to continue in some way. I think, yeah, yeah. And it for me, that's a real... <laughs> that's uh, a real hope. Yeah. My, my hope at that point is both... It's very minimalistic. I don't mean that I know that we can only hope for something minimal. What I mean is, um, uh, as I put it in the last chapter of The God We Never Knew, that um, there's, an all, there's a whole bunch of stuff I think we can't know about what is beyond death. But I think what we can know is that when we die, we do not die into nothingness, but we die into God. And... Um, and um, for me, uh, what more do we need to know? Uh, it's like Martin Luther once saying in exasperation to somebody who was trying to pin him down on whether or not everybody is saved, meaning does everybody uh, go to heaven or only some people? And if it's only some people, is it because they've done something that uh, merits their getting there, in which case isn't salvation by works? And if it if it's only some people and not everybody, and it's not by works, then doesn't that mean double predestination? And Luther finally said in exasperation, heaven is God's business, I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> and, and that's the same motif of, uh, of uh, just being confident in God, that when we die, we do not die into nothingness, but we die into God. Yeah, Patrick. Is it your judgment as a scholar that when Jesus was executed, he knew that Exactly that he would be resurrected? Um, or, or would you read most of those, what seem to be prefigurings in right. the text of the Gospels as later interpolations by Christian And in the judgment of most scholars, and, and I share this judgment, those are post-Easter creations of the early community. Um, so I don't think Jesus spoke of his own um, uh, resurrection beyond execution. I think it's possible that Jesus may have died uh, with confidence in God in spite of, you know, that cry from the cross in Mark's Gospel, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's hard to know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the question is, if uh, did Jesus know he was being crucified for our sins, and if so, when did he? You think he came to realize this? Uh, the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> I figured you guys tell me. Yeah. 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 I want to know why. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, 
The interpretation of Jesus' death as a sacrifice for sin is one of uh, at least five major interpretations of the meaning of his death in the New Testament. And uh, I see all of the interpretations of his death as again being post-Easter creations of the community looking back on his death and seeking to find some kind of meaning, some kind of providential purpose in it. But I don't think Jesus' own purpose was to offer himself up as a sacrifice for sin. Um, can I do a quick thing here? It's very interesting when thinking about what it means to say Jesus is the sacrifice for sin. I don't know that we can redeem that language today. Okay, But it's very interesting when thinking about it to locate it historically in its first century context. What would it have meant in that context to say Jesus is the sacrifice for sin? And the key for understanding that is the temple's claim to have an institutional monopoly on access to God. Because uh, there were certain kinds of sins and impurities that could be atoned for only through animal sacrifice in the temple. For the early Christian movement to say Jesus is the sacrifice for sin is to subvert or to undermine the temple's claim to have an institutional monopoly on atonement and access to God. It means, in effect, you don't need the temple. You have immediacy of access to God apart from any institutional mediation. And then, of course, one of the ironies is that within a couple of centuries, the religion which comes out of Jesus uh, ends up claiming an institutional monopoly itself on access to God when the whole meaning, the radical meaning of the sacrificial metaphor is God through Jesus has already taken care of that. And so to say Jesus is the sacrifice for sin in a first century context is an anti-temple statement. And it's only when it's isolated <coughs> from uh, its original um, first century meaning that it becomes an article in a belief system, belief in which is necessary in order to, um, you know, uh, be a faithful Christian or something like that. And when it's isolated from its metaphorical home, it just becomes a rather strange notion. I was going to say silly, but maybe that's a bit harsh. But um, simply, it becomes a very strange notion. Do you think we can, we can ever uh, get so that we can erase that? Did you say you don't think we can ever? I think it's very hard to redeem that language. It has a wonderfully profound, radical meaning. And, um, uh, but it's, you have to work very hard to um, separate that imagery from what is a pretty horrific um, way of thinking about God. That God can forgive sins only if adequate sacrifice is offered. We can't offer that sacrifice. Therefore, uh, God has to send God's only Son to do so. And, and it really images God as ultimately a lawgiver and judge whose uh, justice must be satisfied and so forth. So I think it's very hard to redeem that language, even though in its radical meaning it's quite wonderful. Well, you know, I go to communion, and mm -hmm. the purpose I thought I was taking communion was to 
was thanking God for sending Jesus so that my sins could be forgiven. Right. Now, I, I'm all been doing this. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with thinking that way. We, we aren't made right with God by getting all of this right. <laughs> um, and and uh, within the completed Christian myth, let me put it that way, okay? And I'm using myth in a positive sense of the word. Uh, myth is a story about, <coughs> excuse me, the relationship between God and us. And within the completed Christian myth in which Jesus is God's only beloved son sent to the world on our behalf, um, the story of Jesus as a sacrifice for sin can become a profound statement of God's love for us. That God loves us so much that God gave up that which was most precious to God, namely the only beloved son, that um, uh, we might be made right with God. And within the framework of a kind of Joseph Campbell interpretation of completed Christian myth, Jesus as the sacrifice provided by God um, on our behalf can become a powerful statement of the depth of God's love for us. It's when it becomes literalized, as, as it so often does, that the only way God can forgive is by this means, and so forth and so forth. Diane? Could you just turn off the mic and then whatever this button will be in our memories because it's going to start to play the video. All right, great, great. I mean, you can push it right to the hour here. But okay, we can do another, what, five minutes in without uh, pushing us too far? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. I have a question that's just kind of nagging at me, but I have to leave and not hear the answer. So oh. somebody remember it. Okay? I mean, somebody get the answer for me. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious as heck, but you know, Easter is like one of the most, as a preacher and pastor, coming Easter Sunday is one of the most joyous days in the life of the church. It's also one of the most just uh, agonizing for me as a preacher. It's probably suddenly the church is filled, and I go, what does all this mean to everybody? Why are we all here? And I'm aware that um, my understanding of what the Easter story is is real different, I think. Mm -hmm. and, and I, you know, the three things you'd list for what the Easter story means and what it tells us, the thing that's not on the list is that, that this story tells us that when we die, we're going to go to heaven. Right. And yet, my hunch is that if I ask, when I took a poll uh, Easter Sunday morning and asked most people what they thought it meant, that's what they would say. Mm. Um, how did we get there? Um, how did we get there? Hmm. So, mm -hmm. goodbye. Right, 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 right. And maybe a short version, but I am too confused because right. I feel like I have to do so much kind of read before right. all the time. Right, right. Um, okay, let me try to say, I don't know if it's two things or three things, I'll just start talking and see how many there are. One is that, um, the belief in an afterlife within the Jewish Christian tradition does not begin at Easter. Um, most Jews at the time of Jesus already believed in an afterlife that would be brought about by God. And so Easter, as I say, doesn't introduce the notion, therefore there's no intrinsic connection between Easter and suddenly we have the hope of resurrection. The hope of resurrection was there before Easter and is really the framework for
Uh, I mean, many um, um, psychologists in particular have argued that anxiety about death is, is, is perhaps the primal human anxiety. And if that's the case, then uh, the Easter story easily gets referred to um, that anxiety about our individual continuation of existence and so forth. So it becomes a celebration of the possibility of eternal life for all of us. And a third thing, I suppose, and I'm not sure where this goes because I'm just thinking of it now for the first time. Um, in the New Testament, death is understood as one of the powers that holds us in bondage. And Easter is understood as God's triumph over death. And therefore, again, it's very easy to see how that gets uh, uh, translated into the hope of individual immortality for each of us and so forth. So there may even be a connection between you know, that line from one of the great Easter hymns, Christ has broken every bond, including the bondage of death and so forth. So maybe there is uh, a connection through the defeat of the powers to uh, the defeat of death. Uh, death is swallowed up in victory and so forth. Uh, so I'm rambling a little bit on that one, but it's one that I will think through a little bit more myself. Uh, how legitimate or not legitimate is it to tie Easter specifically to our hope for an afterlife? But primarily, Easter is about Jesus. Primarily. Yeah. Okay. Got to go. All right. Great. I expect to see you all here next.